You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Convention Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, writer and analyst at MLB.com. Joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. In a little bit, we're going to be joined by Cubs beat writer Jordan Bastion to discuss what's going on in Chicago. But Matt, first, before we get into everything, we are about to make what I think might be one of the gravest mistakes that a non-live recorded show can make, which is to talk about the trade deadline on Wednesday, July 28th at about 3 o'clock Eastern, and knowing that trades have been happening and will continue to be happening, and may actually happen while we're talking here, and yet we're going to do our best to record and get this out as quickly as possible. Did you realize there was a trade like 45 minutes ago? <laughs> the Marlins and the A's made a trade. I love this trade. It's so it's cool. It's a one-for-one trade. The Marlins traded outfielder Starling Marte to Oakland. They got back Jesus Luzardo, who has been in the past a highly regarded pitching prospect, but has struggled a lot this year. And I, a one-for-one one trade like that with guys you know, it's not like faraway prospects or random veteran relievers. That It's just a fun trade that I enjoy, regardless of how you feel about either side, is the way I would put it. Literally yesterday, Mike and I were uh, on Slack chatting about baseball trades, as we do from time to time, um, or daily this time of year. And I, I, I forgot exactly how it came up, but what came up was the... Edgar Renteria for Andy Marte trade when Andy Marte, um, who tragically actually passed away a couple years ago, was but uh, was still a big prospect at the time. I think it was 2005. And I literally wrote to Mike, you know, trades like this don't really happen anymore. And today, sure enough, it's almost like our Slack was bugged because we get a trade, maybe not exactly like that, but pretty similar. And we don't really, it's not exactly a challenge trade, but it's as close to a challenge trade as we get these days. Is this a Marlins thing? Because what did the Marlins do last year, right? Gallon or two years ago, I can't remember. Gallon for Jazz Chisholm is sort of in that same vein. That I mean, that's although they do of, they do have a new GM now with Kim Ang, so not exactly. But anyway, well, that's true. Uh, that that's true. You know what is funny to me? Um, so Marte has had a really good season, right? For uh, Miami, and he's going to be really interesting with an Oakland outfield that hasn't been very good. Do you think it's possible to say so? One year ago, uh, not exactly a year ago, because last year's trade deadline was in August, but uh, one year ago, he was traded by Arizona to Miami, and they got back uh, Caleb Smith and two minor leaguers who haven't really been highly rated. Did the uh, did the Marlins do better for half a year than they had to give up for a year and a half of a good player? Because <laughs> it feels that way. I guess it really depends on what you think of Luzardo now, right? Because if you know. I've seen a lot of baseball Twitter reacting to this of like, oh my God, what a steal for the for the Marlins. What a deal. And to be fair, I think for you know, they basically were gonna lose Marte at the end of this season for, you know, for nothing. I don't know if they can offer I don't I think I guess they probably could offer him a qualifying offer. Um, I don't think he's had one before. Uh, no, because he's he's been traded around. He's never been a free agent. Yeah, but so I guess they could have offered a qualifying offer, but like Luzardo you know, a year ago or a year and a half ago was one of the more highly regarded young pitchers in the game, but he's been pretty bad this year and had real trouble throwing strikes. And the fact that the A's would be willing to trade him for a rental tells you that they're kind of like, yeah, this isn't really going to work for us. It'll work for you with, with, with this organization. You know, the perception might be outweighing what the reality is with with Luzardo. But I think that like, if, if you're the Marlins, you make this trade, but like, I'm not sure. Like, I think this is probably a reasonable trade for the for the A's too, like they're trying to win their division, they've got a chance to, and they've they've got a you know this is this is like a real a really I I like it as a win now move. We've said a couple of times that the A's always seem to go after like a big name guy in the final months of his contract, right? And this is exactly what they've done. They also got Andrew Chafin, uh, a reliever from the Cubs. Yeah, the Lazardo thing's interesting. Like he's been a highly regarded prospect. It's kind of cool. He's from the Southern Florida area, so he's going home here a little bit. Um, he only just turns 24 next month or in, in September. But yeah, this year has been rough. Like he had a 687 ERA for the A's and he broke his hand in frustration playing video games. And then he's been back in AAA where he's been really not very good there until in Las Vegas. So that's hard. Um, every Marlin fan seems to think that their pitching staff will be able to fix him. And maybe that's true. And if they do, I imagine what they have. Like Trevor Rogers is really good and Pablo Lopez and Sixto Sanchez when he's healthy, and Max Meyer and Sandy Alcantara, and you know Edward Cabrera. They've they've got a ton of pitching. I was surprised 
they traded a hitter for a pitcher because they have pitching and they seem to need hitting. Maybe this is not their last deal. All right, before we move on, Matt and I are each going to kind of uh, come up with the guys we would like to see traded. Again, it's about three o'clock Eastern on Wednesday, so hopefully none of these guys actually get traded in the next couple hours. And, you know, Matt, you kind of, I know we weren't really claiming anybody, but since you wrote down the one I liked the best, I'm just going to give it to you. Um, tell tell me, I mean, I already know because I agree with you, Chris Bryant to the Giants makes just so much sense, right? It, it makes a ton of sense. Evan Longoria is still hurt. Bryant could play third. He can also fill in in the outfield. So the versatility is there. Last night, uh, our own JP Morosi reported that uh, the uh, that the Cubs and Giants were talking and that the catching prospect Joey Bart was name was coming up. Now, I don't think that the Cubs would – the Giants would trade Joey Part straight up for a you know two months of Chris Bryant, but maybe if Craig Kimbrell were in the deal too, um, who has a reasonable club option for next year, Kimbrell and Chris Bryant for one of the better catching prospects in the game, that gets interesting, and that could you know the Giants could also really use some some bullpen help as well. Like that's maybe in some ways that's the other issue that you kind of like the, in some ways that might be the most notable um, weakness on their team is that the bullpen is. It doesn't really have that like lights out guy, you know. So like, when you think about that, like that would be like a fun, bold, exciting trade that I w- I would love to see. Love it. Longoria's hurt. Belt is hurt. Left field hasn't been that good for the Giants this year. Like he's he is a perfect fit um, for a team that has like wildly overperformed any expectations. Like I wrote about this a couple of days ago. I I have Zips projections dating back to two thousand and five. And they are the second largest overperforming team this year um, because like we've been saying for months, there's a lot to like there. And I just nobody thought they could overcome the Dodgers and the Padres and maybe they won't. Um, let's talk about Max Scherzer for a second. You had kind of written down here that you want him to go to the Padres. I'm saying the Dodgers. And that is because he has the full control to go wherever he wants to. And I think if there's anything Max Scherzer wants to do, it's to pitch in the playoffs. Not that the Padres can't get there, but they are in third place. And I think that of the three teams, they are maybe the most likely to miss October entirely. So I'm going to say um, Scherzer to the Dodgers because they they desperately need a starting pitcher. And how much fun would it be to have him and Kershaw uh, once he's healthy in the same rotation? Yeah, no, that, that's fair. And, and as you, as you point out, he can essentially pick his to pick his his um, destination. And supposedly he has said he prefers the West Coast. But you're right; he could say, you know what, the Padres. I'm not sure I want to go to a team where the most likely scenario is that I pitch in uh, a wild card game. I do think the Padres. We've seen them, you know, GM AJ Preller be bold before. I could see them giving up something. Um, you know, sort of real for even for Scherzer as a rental. That seems to be their kind of MO. And they actually have some of their like top prospects are, are kind of losing their luster, but still might be enough for, you know, to, to swing that kind of deal. Like, for example, Baseball America just revealed their um, midseason top 100 prospect update, and they had Mackenzie Gore dropping 50 spots um, in their ranking. So at this point, you wonder, like, would they offer Mackenzie Gore for Scherzer as a rental? And like, I think the Nationals would do that. Now, the question is whether or not. Uh, Scherzer would veto his no trade clause yeah. to make that deal happen. We'll hold that thought because we we're definitely going to get into Eric Hosmer trade rumors uh, in a little bit. Since you mentioned Kimbrell above, I was thinking Kimbrell to the Blue Jays would be a lot of fun, not just because they need him this year, but because he's not a rental. He has a reasonable, now reasonable because he's been so good, $16 million club option for next year. And it's not like that Blue Jays lineup is going to stop being great. You know, everybody's young for the most part, except Simeon's a free agent. So he'd be fun next year. Here's the one I want, and I, I don't even mean this necessarily in that I think this is going to happen. It's just sort of like the structure of a trade I feel like needs to happen. Anthony Rizzo to the Mariners, and here's why. It's sort of a fit, right, because they're now only a game out, and uh, a game out of the wild card anyway. And, you know, Ty France has been pretty good at first base, but he can DH or play second or third. Like You will make room for Anthony Rizzo. In a little bit, we're going to get into Mariners talk, and my God, they need to do something big very fast because everybody is very angry. So that's my that's my Rizzo destination. Where are you sending Rizzo? I want Rizzo to go back to the Red Sox where his career began. <laughs> that, how, how, what a great narrative that would be. I think a lot of people don't even realize he was drafted by the Red Sox and then traded to the Padres in the Adrian Gonzalez trade before the Padres traded him to the Cubs. Earlier this week on MLB.com, all of our beat reporters uh, did, a, did a story where they each gave one one kind of recommendation of what they think the club that they cover should do at the trade deadline, not necessarily what they will do, but hey, if I were running the team, here's what I think they should do. 
and our own Ian Brown suggested the Rizzo, the, the the Red Sox should go out and trade for Anthony Rizzo. He suggested both Michael Chavis or Bobby Dahlbeck as players that would be worth offering in a Rizzo trade. The Red Sox could use a first baseman. They could use a left-handed bat. It's a it's a cool fit. It would be a great great story. Well, by the way, whenever we tape these shows, I always turn off all like my video feeds and anything else that's going on on my computer just because I don't want to have, you know, any bandwidth eating up. And so I'm not watching any of the afternoon games, but there is a tweet I need to pass along from our twins.com beat writer, Doe Young Park. And I quote, the twins were down 10 nothing when they came to bat this inning. The tie run is at the plate. So there's there's a lot happening in that game. <laughs> and I wish uh, I was watching it. OK, before we move on. Um, you, you want to do uh, some uh, New York trades here? Where you think the Mets are going to get Jose Barrios? I'm not so sure about that. Well, no, I'm not sure they will, but I'm saying I think it's a trade that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the the question is what you think of the Twins. It's actually you could have really nicely segued there, Mike, with the Twins talk with the Twins reference to go right into this. Let's um, let's say that I did. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's a reason to believe I I, could, I totally buy the argument of people saying, well, the Twins just had a lot of things go wrong this year. They should try and run it back next year. They could still be a very good team and compete with uh, for the AL Central. I'm not so sure. I think that the the White Sox have you know, especially since basically their whole core is going to be back and is still pretty young, are are cut above them right now. Especially since you just can't count on Byron Buxton being healthy. Um, and he just hasn't proven in his career that he can do that and, and you know, be like a, I guess, a seven war player, which he was kind of on pace to do this year and has been on pace to do at other points in his career when he got hurt. So obviously the Mets need a starting pitcher. They have a lot of really good infield prospects. Of course, they also have Francisco Lindor. Um, so one of those prospects, Ronnie Mauricio, who is a shortstop and I guess theoretically could move to another position, but I would think could be the centerpiece of a trade for Jose Barrios, he's under who's under team control for another season after this one. It feels like it could be a match, um, but again, that that's definitely coming more from like a Mets perspective of what they need, and the Twins maybe have maybe have a little bit of a different self assessment than than that. But I certainly think that if the the Mets wanted to do something bold, Mauricio's out there because Francisco Lindor is literally signed for ten more years, so. <laughs> Um, the most value he has is as a shortstop, especially since the Mets have a couple of really good third base prospects. And that's probably the most natural place for Mauricio to move, considering he's really tall and, and, and kind of wiry. Probably not, doesn't really profile as a second baseman. So um, that's that's one that I would I would like to see. We will take a quick break on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. And we'll be right back with our three better men. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We are back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike and Matt, and I got to say Matt, on July 28th, we're doing the podcast. I did not expect one of our primary topics would be about the Seattle Mariners, and yet it feels unavoidable. Mariners are, at the moment... 55 and 47. They're playing the Astros again this afternoon, but at the moment they're seven games out in the West, but only one game out behind Oakland for the second wild card spot. And if you look at the Fangraphs playoff odds, you will find they are a mere 6%. Why is that? You're only one game out of the wild card spot. I know that's a confusing thing. It's because they have been outscored by 51 runs. Okay. The Rockies have been outscored by 53 runs. The Tigers 57. You don't consider those teams to be playoff teams. That doesn't mean that the wins they have don't count. They absolutely do. Uh, It just means that the projections don't see them as being that good of a team. Now, the fact that they have outperformed by this much is largely due to their bullpen and their clutch hitting. And I don't know, Matt. Is it if you have a team that is outperformed by this much, largely due to the bullpen? Do you think there might be somebody who gets upset when you trade your best reliever to your top division rival in the same ballpark after an incredible come from behind win, like hours later? I don't know. I, I couldn't imagine that players might be upset about that. That's the issue with this this trade. Like, and this is the you know with a lot of trades, right? In a vacuum, 
the trade trading Kendall Graveman and I guess it was Kendall Graveman and um, the recently designated for assignment Rafael Montero to the Astros for for Joe Smith and Abraham Toro. Like, okay, it's a totally reasonable trade. But in the moment when you haven't made the playoffs in 20 years and you have this kind of have this mojo, whether or not it's like, you know, I don't really believe that this kind of clutch hitting and record of one run games is sustainable from year to year. Like, I don't, I don't think you should bet on this, whatever's going on for the Mariners right now. You, you don't want to plan around this being a thing that's going to continue in 2022. That said, like, there is something working for the team right now and the fans are actually engaged. They actually have a great fan base, despite the fact they haven't been to the playoffs in literally 20 years. 2001, longest drought in base, longest drought in the game. So it's just kind of, you know, you, you, you kind of lose the fan base is kind of like, well, what am I, why am I, why do I care? You know, like, why, why do I care? And the players, you know, um, as was written in the, I guess it was the Seattle times, the players went, you know, kind of went ballistic after the trade. So it's just the, the, the optif, optics of it are just awful. Now it probably won't matter in the long run. You kind of will depend how the team does. And, you know, but it just it just feels kind of icky. That's yeah. I guess that's what I'll say. Yeah, Here, here's the quote, one of the many quotes in Ryan Divish's piece in the Seattle Times. Uh, An hour ago, it was great, said one player, probably better than it's ever been. And now it's the worst. And that's a tough thing to come back from. Jerry DePoto, the general manager, when asked about the trade, said it probably doesn't make sense as a standalone. But it's part of a context that I believe is going to be an ongoing story over the next couple of days. And that is a quote that I think will be on his Seattle tombstone if he does not do something huge. Like you have put yourself on the spot. You can't just go out and get they traded for Tyler Anderson after the Phillies were unable to. Fine. He's fine. Right. He's a guy. He's a league average ish starter, uh, which is value. That is not the guy that's going to have the locker room, you know, come back around to trading away your best reliever. And if you didn't see what happened uh, the night before. They went down 6 nothing to the Astros in the first inning. They pulled within one run down 8-7 in the bottom of the eighth. They went single and then two outs. So now it's two outs, man on second. You're down by one, again, after being down six runs in the first. And then walk, walk, grand slam. Like one of the coolest moments of the season. And then again, the next day, literally the next day, they make this trade. And there's like, there are baseball reasons to make this trade, you know, because Graveman is has been really good, but he's got very little track record and he's not he's not like a long term difference maker. He has allowed three earned runs in 33 innings. He's good. He's not that good. Uh, And Abraham Torrio has long been like a minor league stat nerd hero because, I mean, listen, in parts of two seasons at AAA, only like 200 plate appearances. Sure, he's got a 497 on base. He's shown almost nothing in the major leagues in 309 career plate appearances. That's not to say he can't or won't. Um, He just hasn't done much. And I get it. Do you want to trade a veteran reliever with that much track record for an interesting 24-year-old infielder you have for another four or so years? Like, I get it to a certain certain extent, but is that, is Toro enough to do something that will infuriate the good feelings around your team, even if, like myself, Poto doesn't actually think the team is that good, right? Like that that's what it is. This is the kind of trade that even if it's defensible, it just annoys everybody. And he's got about 48 hours or so to fix it and do something huge like Anthony Rizzo. I, I actually think the trade the trade that's been out there that's kind of been rumored as a target for the the Mariners, and I'm not even sure this guy is even that that much of a difference maker, but I think might satisfy the masses a little bit is Whit Merrifield. With the, with the Royals. Now, it's unclear whether the Royals would actually trade him, but he is 32 years old. Uh, he's under uh, contract for two more years. One, He's due $2.75 million next year because um, he has a backloaded contract and then a $6.5 million club option for 2023. He's kind of a proven veteran and he's around for a couple of years. So at least you could sort of, you could sell it to the fan base of like, hey, not only did, you know, we, we traded for a guy, but he's going to be around. He's, he's going to be part of this thing we're trying to build when Julio Rodriguez gets here and when hopefully, you know, Jared Kelnick kind of gets his career on track and we'll have some veterans around here to really, you know, put put us over the top and take that next step next year and in 2023. The other name that's out there that would be really wild is Trey Turner. I can't see that happening, but stranger things have happened. Can I tell you another name that's out there for the Royals? 
we are definitely talking about Eric Hosmer trade rumors. That's our second topic here. I don't think Eric Hosmer is actually getting traded, but whenever a trade rumor comes up that says they might be willing to move him, uh, we're definitely talking about it. We actually didn't really get around to talking to the Adam Frazier trade that happened uh, last week. And as far as today's game go, goes, uh, Hosmer's on the bench. Jake Cronenworth is starting at first base, and Adam Frazier is playing second base. And there's all sorts of rumors that well, maybe they got Frazier and Cronenworth can play first base and they don't necessarily need Hosmer anymore. Um, I'm quoting here from the San Diego Union Tribune, and this is literally just a quote. I don't think this will actually happen. And yet, the rumor that appears to have the most traction, a deal that would send Hosmer, outfield prospect Robert Hassel III, and cash to the Rangers for at least Joey Gallo. Oh my God, how much fun would that be? <laughs> anyway, this is the fourth year Eric Hosmer has been with the Padres, and he has not really been that useful. He has... A career, excuse me, a Padres career, 101 OPS plus. He's been exactly league average. All of the defensive metrics uh, don't like him very much. His wins above replacement per fan graphs as a Padre, 0.0, which is no way to go through a baseball life. Uh, he signed for eight years and $144 million before 2018, but a lot of it's backloaded. So, you know, for the last three seasons, for 2013, 23, 4, and 5. He's actually only owed $13 million a piece. Like the, the contract gets lighter. Of course, the average annual value sticks with everything. So uh, it's still $18 million a piece. If he stays with the Padres through the end of next year, he will have 10 to 10 and 5 rights, like Scherzer does, which means he has full control over where he gets traded. Right now, as per Ken Rosenthal, he has a limited 10 trade, no team clause, uh, no 10 team, no trade clause. The teams he can block are apparently. Baltimore, Cleveland, Detroit, Milwaukee, Oakland, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, Seattle, St. Louis, Toronto. Kansas City's not on that list. They should trade for Eric Hosmer. Because not that there's any real good reason for anybody to, but because I personally would think it would be funny. Um, Kevin Acey of the San Diego Union Tribune said, it looks like if Hosmer goes, so does one of the Padres' top four prospects. Now that is generally hassle. Mackenzie Gore, C.J. Abrams, and Luis Camposano. Although, as you noted earlier, Matt, uh, Gore's prospect star has dropped precipitously, so I'm not actually sure if he's still one of those four guys. Wouldn't it be fun for someone to just do... like? I know I always go back to the Rockies, right? Some team should just trade for him and say, great, play for us, and we'll get a top prospect. Like that, That is a great way to get a top prospect that you could not otherwise access. No one's going to do this. Because Hasmer's not that good. But tell me someone's going to do it. I th- I think this could happen because I think the, the Padres are motivated to do this right now. And, he, you know, he has 20 teams he can get traded to without his consent. So I could really see see this happening. I mean, when, when the Adam Frazier trade went down, I guess it happened on Sunday, the first thing I thought of was like, this is a weird roster fit. This is another left-handed hitter who plays on the right side of the infield. And you make this trade because you think he's making your team better. Right, you already have Jake Cronenworth, who's been good, made the All Star team. So then, who's the odd man out? It's obviously Eric Hosmer. This is actually why a couple months ago in this podcast, I said the the Padres should really be going after a right handed hitting first base type. I think I mentioned CJ Crone or Jesus Aguilar because I was like, this will be a good roster fit, or, or you know, like someone they could kind of if, if you're prepared to kind of cut cut Hosmer's playing da- time down a little bit, then those guys make sense. Now the roster fit is really awkward. So yeah, the, the Royals would be fun. I think this could be the, the the seeds of a of a Max Scherzer trade. If you say, "Well, send Hosmer and one of our top prospects for for Scherzer," you got to you know you know that kind of offsets the money. We get Scherzer, you get a top prospect. I think it's I think there could be a fit there. This is good. I I like some potential creative trade scenarios happening here, and I think the the Padres are exactly the kind of team that will figure out a way to make this work. I am extremely down for this getting weird. I think that would be so much fun. All right. Our third item here is it's Joey Votto season. No, Joey Votto is not actually going to get traded anywhere, but he's been fantastic. He is just a couple of weeks away from turning 38 years old. He has hit a home run in four straight games, five home runs over those four games. And it's pretty fun if you split his season in half. Uh, He broke his thumb when he got hit by a pitch on May 5th. So before that, he actually was not having a very good season. Uh, 305 on base, 720 OPS. Since then, since he came back from the injury on June 8th, he has crushed the ball. A 592 slugging percentage, a 998 OPS. Since he came back, there's only 14 players who have an OPS of 998 or higher. I'm not going to read them all off to you, but know that there are superstars in there. Otani, Vlad Jr., Tatis, Harper Soto Machado, and Joey Votto in there. And what I get a big kick out of is that if you look at his numbers, he has a career 
worst strikeout percentage. He's striking out 24% of the time, which is more than he ever has. He's paired that with a wildly career best 50% hard hit rate. Last year, he had a 35% hard hit rate, the year before 38. And this isn't an accident. Like he has very specifically said, I'm trying to change my swing for more power. Like at, at a younger age, maybe I could do both, like make great contact and hit for power. At this age, it's a lot harder to do. So I'm going to sacrifice some contact for some power. And he's been phenomenal. And I get it. He's not getting traded. That's not what we're talking about here. Just as a fan of Joey Votto, future Hall of Famer Joey Votto, the fact that he's still performing this well, it makes me deeply happy on a team I otherwise don't care that much about. But I love Joey Votto. It is good for baseball when Joey Votto is good. Yeah, he's he's an awesome player. I agree with you. Future Hall of Famer. I think we there's a good chance we will both get a chance to vote for him one day. Yeah. That will be cool <laughs> to do. Uh, and then he's also just a great personality you know even just like today i saw there was a video he was in chicago and he spotted one like six-year-old kid in chicago with a red hat and shirt on and he like pointed to him and said come on down to the field brought him down to like right behind right to the front row and handed him a ball i mean that's how you make fans for life and joey Votto does stuff like this all the time he's awesome and the reds finally it took forever but they finally decided like hey you know what we can we can improve our bullpen. That's allowed. I don't know why they felt they had they, they didn't have to wait until the trade deadline to do it. But they've made it in the last couple of days, they've added, I guess, or was it all today, they've added three three relievers that will I think maybe are now like three of their four best relievers. Yeah, they they got Michael Givens from Colorado. They got Justin Wilson and Luis Sessa from the Yankees. Uh, that one's entertaining to me because back when the Yankees originally had uh Justin Wilson back in 20 20- for 15, which they traded uh, Francisco Cervelli from him. He had one good year with the Yankees, and then he was traded to uh, Detroit in 2015 for Luis Sessa and Chad Green, which is very funny to me. Um, Wilson's been really terrible, but Luis Sessa is very interesting. And all the Yankee fans are like, um, we're trading away relievers for a player to be named later. What what are we doing here? That's another story entirely. Um, the Reds are seven games out behind Milwaukee, and they are six games behind San Diego, and it, so the Mets, but in the wild card. It's cool to see them adding, and I don't think they're doing anything huge here. Do, do they have a shot? Like, I'm not convinced they actually do. No, I don't. I think it's at this point that they, they they had games against Milwaukee where they had a chance to make up ground, and they didn't. I think they lost ground. So, unfortunately, I don't think so. I think they should have. I mean, it's obviously it takes two to tango, right? So, you know, I could say, oh, they should have made trades six weeks ago, but maybe there weren't trade partners then for relievers, so that maybe they had to wait. But reality, they went into the season with a bullpen that was questionable to begin with. So it's not surprising that here they are two days before the trade deadline, you know, feverishly trying to add relievers to improve their team. I think it's probably going to be, as someone who's been, you know, driving the Reds bandwagon and really liked their roster more than most going into the season, it's a little bit of a bummer because I think the window was there. But I think at this point, seven games behind Milwaukee is going to be pretty tough to make up. We will take a quick break and we will be back with Jordan Bash on Saturday South Coast. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. We are back with Jordan Bastian, our friend and colleague, who is the MLB.com Cubs beat reporter. Jordan, thanks for joining us. A very interesting time in Cubs world right now. And before we get to the trade stuff, I kind of wanted to just like big picture the Cubs with you, because at least from my perspective, coming into the season from 1,500 miles away, Cubs fans were maybe a little disillusioned by the uh, unpopular U Darvish trade. 
And then as the season went on, it's been kind of weird. Like they weren't good in April or June or July, but they were really good in May and they were in kind of, you know, in first place for a while. And just how has this season to date met with your expectations? Coming yeah, it, it has been interesting because I think we saw the best case version of the team in May. And we've also seen the rock bottom versions of this team. And, you know, it was funny, you know, you do the prediction stuff ahead of the season or people ask how many wins or whatever. And uh, I always sort of landed on, I know a lot of writers will do this where they say, Hey, like the, the, there's a really wide gap between what this team could be and what it might not be. But you really felt that with this team going in and it's sort of played out that way. Um, kind of in these really high peaks and really low valleys and sort of landing on being right around a 500 team, which is kind of where we all thought they were going into the season. They are who we thought they were, so to speak. Um, I think when they, when they made that Darvish trade, so much of it was, was budget-based at the time with a lot of the unknowns about this season and where uh, the payroll flexibility was going to be at. Um, obviously things loosened up in that regard and you saw that wave of short-term signings whether it was Jack Peterson or Arietta Marisnik you know they had this wave of okay maybe we can spend a little more um, as they were trying to forecast out the, the pandemic after effect budget um, but I think in the end you sort of are, are arriving to where I kind of thought this team was going to be at the end of this season which was sort of a, a second, third place team, uh, right around maybe a 500, maybe a little above 500 if things went really well. Um, in a weak division, maybe the Cubs thought they could contend for that division crown. But, you know, the uh, cruel nature of baseball after they throw a no-hitter, they lose 11 in a row, and it directly coincided with the Brewers just getting extremely hot, and it just immediately separated the pack uh, and when that deadline's looming and you've got a dozen plus players heading for free agency, potentially, it just created this situation where uh, the writing that's been on the wall um, for the last several years is now very much highlighted. And uh, as Jed Hoyer said <laughs> earlier in July, life comes at you fast. And that's kind of what happened here. <laughs> and I think now Cubs fans, players, uh, those of us who have followed this team for a few years or, or many years for some of the writers in that press box, you, we've all been writing about building to this moment and this moment's here. Do you think there's regrets in the front office at this point about the Darvish tree, just in the sense that you know we've been talking for maybe two months now about how weak the July 30th starting pitching market was going to be. And that's really played out like, Max Scherzer is very good, but he's got control over where he's going to go. And otherwise you're like, oh, do I trust Kyle Gibson? Is Michael Pineda going to turn my season around? I don't know. If you had a U Darvish to trade, that guy would be super valuable right now. Like, do you think going back, they wish, oh, why did we do that at the time? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that for much of this season, the glaring needs for the Cubs were an ace pitcher and a reliable backup catcher. Uh, and they got rid of you, <laughs> Where could you and find those? Victor Caratini. <laughs> and, you know, I will say it's going to take time to see, as with any of these types of deals, what this prospect package ends up looking like down the road. A couple of these guys are raking down in the minors, and that's kind of reassuring for some Cubs fans who are now like clicking refresh on minor league box scores for the first time in a while. Um, but I, I could see I could see that stance of, oh, man, maybe they should have waited. Maybe the team would be in a better position right now. Um, things like that. But again, I think at that point in time, they needed, in order to accomplish filling the, the many holes that were present on the roster, they they needed, from the front office perspective, um, something to give on the budget. And, and unfortunately, that was sort of the one fell swoop way to do that and get a package of, of prospects as the, you know, to use the, the Jed jargon right now, keep an eye on the future as well as the present. Uh, but I also think that move kind of was foreshadowing for, for where we're at with this team right now and, and what they're trying to accomplish where, um, you know, they are trying to not necessarily go into a full rebuild, um, but they need to free up some flexibility for the next couple seasons so they can, you know, they have a better foundation in place um, with some of the young arms they have and 
you know, they're going to have a lot of money potentially coming off the books. And this team, you know, can maybe use this next year or two to kind of get a sense of what the foundation looks like with, you know, Nico Horner, Brennan Davis, potentially reaching the big leagues, uh, you know, some of these arms they have. And, and then, you know, they still have the wherewithal to be aggressive spenders when the market dictates. So I, I'm, you know, maybe I'm sipping a little Kool-Aid, but I don't think it could be like a long rebuild like uh, like Cubs fans experienced in the past. Um, but it's also I'm, it's hard on Cubs fans right now to see some of these stars they've they've grown to love and seen grow together to to kind of face this reality that some of these some of these dudes will be wearing other uniforms soon. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the idea of a, a full rebuild and trying to avoid that because I don't think anybody, even people who aren't Cubs fans, want to see this franchise say, "Okay, well, check back on us in five years." Right. You know, like that's not what it's not what a Cubs team should be doing. But I'm also sort of struck by the entirety of the situation, and what I mean by that is, yes, everybody wants to know where Chris Bryant will go or where Anthony Rizzo will go. But if you look at the the Guys who might potentially be available, like they already moved Peterson and they already moved Chafin. And then you have Rizzo and Bryant and Baez and Tapera and maybe Zach Davies. You could even talk yourself into Kyle Hendricks because the starter market is so bad. And it's like, is the best path forward to try to trade like almost everybody and, you know, close your eyes for the next two months, I guess? Because it's hard for me to see them actually taking all these big names and moving them all. But I guess there's an argument to actually do that. Yeah. And I think a lot of these guys were signed to such short deals. Um, you mentioned Davies. Uh, you, I don't know if you even mentioned Kimbrell, you know, and that's one of the, the most attractive pieces on the market. But Jack Peterson, uh, you know, Marisnik, a lot of these guys were signed to these deals, these short-term deals with the idea that, hey, this is potentially the end of, uh, this is like the last go to try and get that ring again. But also if it doesn't work out, now they're in the, the other situation of, well, now we have a whole ton of trade chips and you can get some fire prospects. I really like the returns they got for, for Jock Peterson, who wasn't performing that great. Uh, they got an actual kind of fire prospect from the Braves, guy with great power. Uh, you know, they flip Chafin and, and get uh, a kind of a raw stuff, young, low A pitcher. Uh, and then they get a, get a good hitter who's close to the big leagues with, it, with some good power potential. So you see they're getting like real good value for these short-term contracts. But I, to, to your point, I think what needs to be the priority is to figure out which of that core group fits in the picture. You know, if Javi Baez fits in the picture, you know, I think he needs some more clarity along that lines. Or, or if Chris Bryant fits in the picture, you know, a guy who's been dealing with these trade rumors for three straight years um, and just looked mentally exhausted when we spoke with him after the game uh, the other day, you know, some of these guys need some clarity or, or Rizzo, you know, he turned down a, an extension, but you know, I, you can't, I, I don't think of the core group you can afford to move all of them. Um, but I do think you have to sort of break it up a little bit. Love your use of the term fire prospects, by the way, there. I think that's a, a fantastic way to look at it. I forgot to remind everybody, we are, from our point of view, we're recording this on Wednesday morning because everything could change very quickly. We're about eight hours or so away from uh, first pitch of tonight's Cubs game. Uh, but kind of going back to what you just said, of those big names, who is the most likely to still be here in a week? Uh, I think Rizzo could it seems like the the natural one to kind of stay as you know uh, you know maybe on a short-term deal um i think javi if you're looking at like a, a longer term extension i think he's the guy that makes the most sense he's the youngest of the group of the core guys you know no one's really talking about wilson Contreras right now because he has an extra year of control but i think it'd be really important for them to kind of uh, lock him in um, and kind of make him a part of not only this current group, but bridging to the to the next great Cubs team, again, to use a little Jet Hoyerism. Um, so I, I think Chris Bryant, you know, just based on everything, you know, we're hearing and reading, um, he seems, him and Kimbrell seem like the likeliest guys to be moved at the deadline among the, the big ticket names. Um, I think, I, I don't think it's unrealistic uh, to see Rizzo moved, um, I think it's less realistic to see Javi moved. That would be kind of where I would rank them at the moment. 
Bias is really interesting to me because he's obviously very popular among the Cubs fan base, and he's said several times he'd like to stay there and be a lifelong Cub. And yet I'm not sure I can think of many players where, I don't know, the way I evaluate him is different than the way I've seen it tossed out there publicly. Like I've seen John Heyman say, well, he might be in line for a $200 million contract if he's a free agent. And I'm like, I just don't know if I see that. <laughs> like the last two years have been super inconsistent. And even this year, the fielding's been just okay. I, I mean, is he a guy where if they don't trade him or sign him, he could potentially come back on the qualifying offer? Like that seems like there's some merit to that for both sides. Yeah, that would be interesting. I, I don't think I don't think that scenario would play out, but I could see him coming back on a deal that maybe um, you know isn't the the mammoth deal that that people think he could get. But kind of to your point, this dude's a unicorn. Like he's a statistical unicorn. There's no comp for Javi Baez, who can get you 30 homers and 100 RBIs while just striking out and not walking all the time. Um, I mean, earlier this year, his strikeout rate was it was like upwards of 40, close to 50%. His walk rate was like un- under 4%, and he still was putting up like mammoth power numbers. You know, so it was he's a really interesting guy uh, defensively. You know, I think some of the advanced stuff has played in his favor in recent years. Um, so I think that can help him because, you know, he's going to bring you plus defense, even if he's uh, going through one of those super cold, streaky spells at the plate. But, yeah, I just think he's a, a unicorn and it's going to be really interesting to see what type of offers present themselves to him. I think you could see a wide range or a wide gap in in how teams value him just because of the stuff you're you're mentioning. Can't talk about Baez without mentioning uh, his walk-off hit against the Reds the other night. (laughs) And uh, I think a lot of people didn't fully understand that there was a lot of history there with Amir Garrett uh, and the Cubs and all this. What was that like being in the ballpark to see that? You know, I imagine that played out a little differently than it did. Yeah, he torpedoed my whole story that I had prepared for that day. Um, (laughs) You know, usually David Ross, when a guy is banged up or, or out of the lineup with something, Rossi does whatever he can to not use that player. Like, you just know that's a day off for him. You know, and so I had this nice story about uh, Hendricks being one of the guys that's locked up beyond this year and the bridge and the young arms and the foundation. I, it was great. I had quotes from the pitching coach and, you know, just sort of no, – I just need nothing crazy to happen in the game, Mike. Just, you know, I can hit send. I can plug the score in and everyone can read about this this nice uh, this nice rotation story and how they're – building for the future and yada, yada, yada. And then I get my little binoculars out when they call Amir Garrett into the game. And I look down at the dugout and Baez already has a helmet on and he's pacing back and forth like a bull. And I'm like, oh no, okay, Javi's coming in here. Like, he's not being denied. And I see I see Rossi's looking down behind him and he's looking at the field. He's looking back behind him. Javi's pacing and I'm like, oh, Javi's coming in here. Like he's not telling him he can't. So he goes up there, and I think one of my favorite parts is how he was already like barking at Amir Garrett before he even stepped in the batter's box. Um, and kind of, yeah, for a little bit of background, earlier this year there was an incident where uh, Garrett struck out Rizzo and kind of celebrated a little more than uh, the Cubs would have liked, and Javi leaped over the railing and kind of challenged him. Um, a couple years ago there was another bench clearing where – you know, Javi did the, you know, the hand motion of quit running your mouth, uh, you know, and everyone knows Amir Garrett lo- loves his celebrations and you know, there's history there. And so you knew it right away. Um, and it was, I mean, that was a blast. It was the first time I actually was happy to have my story just totally rewritten um, in the moment. Someone tried to talk to me in the press box. I'm like, not now, because I was literally writing uh, what, what Javi was doing and how he was reacting like in real time. Um, so I could get something in for the website real quick. Uh, but there was just chaos below, you know, it, we're, we were trying to analyze like, what was the maneuver with the bat? Was he, was he rowing a boat? Was he, we, we later figured out like, oh, I think he was, cause in uh, July 4th, Amir Garrett did a sweeping motion. And so I think he was mocking the sweeping motion that Garrett had made last time. Uh, but man, it was uh, that was a wild scene. That was one of the more memorable uh, walk-offs uh, in the last few years for the Cubs. And I mean, and I'll be honest, in a time where there's all these just huge big picture storylines and, you know, the team just got distractions left and right. And 
the actual games haven't really mattered as much as the developments around the team. It was really fun to just have this dynamic uh, moment down on the field uh, between two hyper-competitive guys. And uh, the other fun part was Garrett picks up the bat and the umpire, uh, first base umpire, ran o- ran over and it looked like he was like, hey, you remember the remember the visiting dugout? Let me show you right this way. The visiting dugout right this way. And kind of <laughs> escorted him off the field and, you know, nothing came of it. So really, really wildly entertaining scene. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll write that rotation story another day. Last night, they brought Garrett back out to close the game again, and Baez wasn't in the lineup. Did you have your binoculars trained on the dugout, wondering to see if he'd yeah, come he back out? Yeah, he actually was getting ready to bat again. And uh, it was, oh, you man. know, because Patrick Wisdom launched another homer. He's been a great story this year. Bryant hit another homer. Uh, you know, great moment for him in the ninth. And then they bring in Garrett, and you're like, here we go again. But uh, Garrett, who said the best revenge would be to shut them down, got his little bit of revenge. So, you know, hey, I'm, props to Garrett for not, you know, not reacting in the moment the other night and turning that into a more chaotic scene than it could have been. You know, I think uh, I think it ended in a way where, hey, maybe not everyone was pleased, but nobody got hurt, and it was just a, a really fun uh, bit of entertainment to watch. Last thing before we get let you go, uh, in about eight hours or so, the Reds and the Cubs will play again, and Davies is scheduled to pitch. Do you, when you go to the ballpark today and you're preparing for today's night's game, do you expect there to be any moves before that game happens, or are we going to see the same Cubs lineup? Today? Uh, I would be surprised at this point um, if any of the big players are moved before the game. It just feels like one of those things where the names that are left sort of have that deadline day feel to them. So. You know, uh, famous last words, um, I may be now driving and have uh, four players moved on my way to the ballpark. So, but that's just sort of the sense I get that we're sort of in down to the wire territory with the names that are left here. Yeah, I, I lied. Actually, this is the last question. After this, the Cubs go to Washington for a couple of days where they will be uh, for the deadline. And I assume you're not traveling on that trip. So how are you going to handle the deadline remotely? On this yeah, well, issue? I mean, we have staff in D.C. I'll be I'll be home. Um, you know, we'll be working the phones and getting stories up as quick as possible. And we'll have people on the ground there in D.C. to to talk to everybody there. And then uh, once the deadline passes, I will go into a little coma for a couple of days. And then, uh, and then head out to Colorado and deal with whatever the aftermath is. And, and, and honestly, it will be fun to get past this. You know me, I love the analytical side of baseball. I'm really looking forward to when I can like dive into what Al- Edbert Alzali is doing with his pitch repertoire. And I think that type of stuff will have a place in August and September and will be really fun and will be really important for uh, the future uh, direction of this Cubs team. So I think this is all hugely important moments right now for this franchise. Super interesting. Uh, but I think like everyone probably in that clubhouse, uh, I'm also looking forward to, uh, I guess it's July 31st this, this year, but August 1st. Big fan of Adbert Azale, bigger fan of Jordan Bastion. Jordan, thanks for spending some time with us. Good luck right, for the next couple of days. We will be right back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Our thanks to Jordan Bastion for telling us all about the fun at Wrigley. Matt and I usually like to end our show by picking out a guy you should know, and I'm about to shock Matt right now because I had written out something about a guy I wanted to talk about, and I'm going to do a very last-minute change here for, wait for it, a 38-year-old right-handed reliever, Sergio Romo. Yes, that's right, the same Sergio Romo who was a member of those great Giants teams from now like a decade ago. You may not have noticed he was with the Twins the last couple of years, and now he's with Oakland, and you might say to yourself, so what? 362 ERA, big deal. Why do I care? Here's why you should care. 
Do you know who the best reliever in baseball was in July? Sergio Romo. In his last 11 games, he has allowed two hits, one walk, 14 strikeouts. He has been phenomenal, and he's changed it a little bit. You know, he's obviously been known for the Frisbee slider forever. Used to be more of like a four-seam slider kind of guy, and now he's going with a little more of like a two-seam and change-up and slider, which I think gives him like a bit of a horizontal mirroring effect. He is going to be really interesting if the A's continue to get to the playoffs. So they're, you know, they might win the division. They might get the wild card. Um, he, I always remembered him as the first opener because he did that for Tampa Bay. And now here he is at 38, still pitching really well, like the best reliever in July, high leverage innings uh, for the A's. And just a brief trade note here. Ken Rosenthal says the Astros are getting another reliever. Yimmy Garcia from the Marlins. I feel like we're going to see 650 relievers traded in the next three days. I like the the uh, the A's and Astros both going to, like, trying to raid the Marlins to, to, to decide right. who, will, uh, <laughs> who will win the uh, win the uh, AL West. Uh, Sergio Romo actually closed out the uh, the 2012 World Series. I remember that because it was maybe the coldest game I've ever been at. Um, it was the fastball, right? Like he has he's he's known for the slider and he throws a fastball like right past peak Miguel Cabrera. Exactly, exactly. To finish off uh, the sweep with a hurricane bearing down on us. Um, for my player this week, I'm going to tee him up by mentioning a, a stat I saw tweeted by uh, our very own Sarah Langs. She tweeted a list the other day. This was uh, entering Sunday. So um, I'm, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming this probably still holds. Um, qualified players who are currently 90th percentile or better in both hard hit rate and sprint speed. Shohei Otane, okay. Fernando Tatis Jr., all right. Ronald Acuna Jr., great. And number four, the only other player in this category, Tyler O'Neill. Yep, Tyler O'Neill. Let's talk about Tyler O'Neill. The 0-1 pitch. O'Neill crushes one out to deep left field. How far? Mammoth shot. Tyler O'Neill. Home run number 14. Two-run homer. Good finish by Tyler O'Neill. Kind of had the Mark McGuire finish on that, didn't he? But not a very violent swing, just a powerful swing. Tyler O'Neill, as you probably all know, is a Cardinals outfielder from Canada. He was actually originally drafted by the um, the Mariners uh, in 2013, and he was traded to the Cardinals for straight and actually kind of a challenge trade for Marco Gonzalez. Um, he's hitting 274, 331, 526, and his 136 OPS plus is the highest among Cardinals qualifiers. Yes, this is a team that has uh, Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt, to name a couple of other more famous names. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how the Cardinals over the years have let a lot of talented young outfielders go and that they really could have done a lot more to keep some of these guys. Well, it should be noted that one of the guys they kept and they've held on to, Tyler O'Neill, is actually having a very good season and is a very interesting player. Um, and from like, he also has an interesting bio, as some of you might know. He's an avid weightlifter and he's been, as per Wikipedia, he's been recorded on video quarter squatting as much as 585 pounds. His father, Terry, was named Mr. Canada in 1975. And you know, I've seen some, some photos circulating on Twitter of uh, O'Neill's dad. As you can imagine, he is quite, quite jacked. This is actually um, kind of a big deal because early in, I guess last winter, like I was pretty down on the Cardinals. You know, everybody's like, oh, they, they won the winter. They got Arenado. And I'm like, I just don't see it. Like, I don't think they're going to be that good. I like the young outfielders they have, Dylan Carlson and Harrison Bader and O'Neill, but I just, I don't like the idea of going into that as that being your guys and not having any veteran outfielders. And that kind of came true. <laughs> like they've had injuries, they've had flashes. Let me give you a number here. In the first half of the season, if you look at the St. Louis outfielders as a group, they had the one, two, three, four, they had the fifth worst offensive performance in baseball, right? Because some of these young guys struggled and then like Lane Thomas wasn't very good and Justin Williams wasn't very good. Fifth weakest. In the second half of the season, the St. Louis outfielders have been the fourth best. And yes, that's O'Neill, what you said, but also Harrison Bader has been awesome. And he's always been like a fantastic defender, uh, but he has been a really improved outfield batter too. And if this continues, like if we go into the winter and these three younger guys are um, performing, this might make me think a little bit about how I view about the Cardinals. 
next year. Okay, we are going to finish off our show with a rant. Here's my rant. Sometimes rant are just like served on a silver platter. This is one of those times. You may have seen floating around the internet a video this week uh, where it was supposed that maybe changes in technology were the reason it seems like pitchers are throwing harder. Maybe they're not actually throwing harder. Maybe it's just the technology has changed. The measurement has changed. And I'm here to say, no, they, they're literally just throwing harder. And the point here is not actually about the video that was floating around. Um, but I've heard this argument a lot over the last couple of years, and it usually comes from the this, people who have an outlook of, well, it's not pitchers that are causing strikeouts. It's hitters who aren't good or care about launch angle. And, you know, back in my day, they would just make contact as though that's the reason and not that pitchers are great. And listen, here's a thing that is true. Statcast and before it pitch effects measures things differently than the old school radar guns did. That's true. Statcast measures out of the hand uh, pitch effects, which was around from 2008 to 2015, measured it from like, I want to say 55 feet. Um, those are all normalized now, right? Everything since 2008 is on the exact same scale. So it's not it's not just that, right? So even if you just look at those on the same scale, in 2008, there were 214 pitches measured at over 100 miles an hour. Through yesterday, this year, halfway through the season, we are over 1,100 of those pitches. Yes, guys are throwing harder. And do you know how we know? Because they keep telling us they're trying to. Guys are actually training for velocity. It used to be you'd get the guy who threw hard and couldn't throw strikes, and maybe you'd teach him to throw strikes. No. Now it's Shane Bieber, the guy with great command who doesn't throw super hard, and you improve your training methods. It is true that radar guns were different back in the day. Uh, there's no real database of that. The problem is there were many brands, there were hot guns and cold guns, and sometimes the guy in the stands would point it at the plate, and sometimes he'd point it 10 feet in front of the plate, and sometimes he'd point it at the pitcher's mound. There was no consistency. The final thing I want to say is, um, in the movie Fastball, a claim is made that Nolan Ryan threw the ball 100.8 miles an hour in 1974. Now, our friend Rob Friedman, uh, Friedman the pitching ninja, went and did a whole expose on this, because the argument is, because it was tracked near the plate, not out of hand, 100 miles an hour in 1974 should be 108 miles an hour in today's game. I love Nolan Ryan. That dude did not throw 108 miles an hour. As Rob Freeman points out, the device used to track that was never used again because it was unreliable. And if you think that Nolan Ryan threw harder than anybody who lives now, not only the pitchers who lived at the time, well, let Tom Seaver tell you exactly about that. You talk about uh, you had a Kuzman and a Gentry and a Seaver and a Ryan. You got to understand that we all threw hard. We all threw very hard. I mean, I I'm, I may have gone out there and thrown the ball 98 miles an hour. Uh, Kuzman may have gone out there and thrown the ball 97 miles an hour. Gentry may have gone out there and thrown the ball 98 miles an hour. Nolan went out there and he was he was he maybe he threw the ball 100 miles an hour. And we all knew that he threw it harder than, than really maybe anybody else we'd ever we had ever seen. Uh, but it wasn't that big a difference relative to the rest of us. And he but still he didn't had, have the control that you No, raised. he didn't have the control. He was such a, such a raw talent. So yes, Nolan Ryan threw hard. Of course the top guys did. He did not throw 108. And on, on aggregate, pitchers from back in the day did not throw harder than they do now. Velocity is up. Pitchers are great. Let's leave it at that. Here, here. Um, for my rant, I'm going to bring it back to the trade deadline because at this time of this time of year, you see a lot of conversation about trading prospects, and you hear fans or analysts saying, "Oh, they can't trade this guy. They can't trade that guy. Yada yada yada. He's too valuable. You want to get seven years of team control." Reality: trading pro prospects is generally fine. The point of trade, the thing when you're trading prospects, you basically have to meet two conditions. One, the player being acquired is actually good and helps you in a meaningful way now. Two, the quality versus quantity is not completely out of whack. Like it's a relatively even trade. So when people think of the trades that were kind of messed up, they're the ones that failed to meet either or both of these criteria. A very famous recent example is the Chris Archer trade to, to Pittsburgh at the 2018 deadline where he went to Pittsburgh and the Pirates sent back Tyler Glasnow, Austin Meadows, and Shane Baz, right? The problem with that trade wasn't that they traded for Chris Archer. The problem was that they weren't real contenders, so he wasn't really helping them in a meaningful way, and they gave up three valuable young players for him. Yes, I know Archer had two and a half years left on his deal, including a 2020 team option that ended up being declined, 
but it wasn't even that good in 2020 when the trade was made. Like the trade was obviously terrible the moment it happened because it was so out of whack for a team that wasn't really a contender at the time anyway. Another notable trade like this was when the Mets infamously traded Scott Casimir at the 2004 deadline for Victor Zambrano. It wasn't trading Casimir wasn't wasn't what was bad. It was that they weren't really contenders, and Zambrano wasn't going to help them get to their goal in any meaningful way. But if you look at more recently at deadline deals of this ilk, look at Aroldis Chapman for Gleyber Torres, Johannes um, Cespedes for Michael Fulmer, Zach Greinke of the Astros, Justin Verlander of the Astros. Good prospects were given up, but the, the teams don't regret the trades because they were actually good players who helped the team reach their goals and were actually like specifically helping them in that moment, right? And you even, even in the offseason, when you look at some of the recent trades where prospects got traded, where the Nats gave up Giolito to get Adam Eaton, who helped them win a World Series, or the Red Sox gave up Johan Moncada and Michael Kopech to get Sale, who helped them win a World Series. If you're getting good players who are actually improving your team, don't freak out about trading a prospect. I'm sorry. No, when the Dodgers pulled off one of the greatest trade, trade deadlines trades in history in 2008 and got Manny Machado, uh, they limited the uh, excuse me, many Ramirez. Yes, they lamented the loss of Andy LaRoche forever. <laughs> I'm, I agree with you. I think everybody gets a little too prospect huggy. And I think part of that is just greater interest in, and access to knowing who these guys are. You know, like 20 years ago, you maybe knew a couple of the names of the top guys in the farm system. And now you can go 45 deep and know their blood type. <laughs> so, because the one thing I want to mention too is also it's like the other thing it's like, a huge, not every major leaguer, but a huge portion of major leaguers, like everyone from like superstars to just like, okay, major leaguers were big prospects at one time or another. So it's like a lot of the time, yes, the huge prospects do turn out to be, you know, Vladimir Carrero Jr. And he pans out. But a lot of time it's like Andrew Benintendi and he's just like, okay, he's a guy, you know? So it's like, and more often than not, they're just like a guy or like even like a slightly above average guy, like, but it's not like. Someone who you're, you 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 look back five years later and think, oh my goodness, I can't believe we did that. I am going to hold you to this when we see what happens over the next couple of days, especially when it comes to your favorite team. That is our podcast for this week. Thank you for listening. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week. Bye.